having type 1 diabetes in your family, anywhere in your family, makes you 15 times more likely to get it as well. And it's much easier if you have diabetes in your family to say to your doctor, I want to be screened for these antibodies. However, it's really important to know that one in 300 people without a family history of diabetes will get diagnosed with diabetes this year. You thought it, but we said it. I'm Alexis, a certified leadership and life coach. And I'm Sam, a licensed therapist, and we consider ourselves mindset gurus. Perspectively Yours is our platform where we dive headfirst into conversations on topics that can make or break us. We speak to women about the things we often think, but don't say out loud, how we can shift our perspectives around them to build our resilience and normalize our experiences. This is for the woman who wants a full plate and a full cup without burning out. We're bringing our expertise to the table to give you game-changing tips on how to shift your perspective. So let's spill the tea and get started. Hello, we're here. Hello, how are you? Oh, I'm good. Just pouring rain. It's four o'clock in the afternoon and it's dark outside. Mm, Well, (laughs) it's dark here too. It's a little bit later on the East Coast, but the early darkness is definitely depressing. It's so depressing. (laughs) (laughs) But... Um, welcome to another episode of Perspectively Yours. We are here for another episode. And today we wanted to talk with our friend Jana because November is National Diabetes Awareness Month. And Jana had a really big life change that happened over the last year. Um, and we wanted to talk to her about what that experience was like and all of the mindset shifts and really big life adjustments that happen when you have such a big medical event happen in your life that ends up changing your entire life. So Jana is from the greater Boston area. She is a cat mom who volunteers with an animal rescue, works as an animal communicator, is a garden consultant, a brand advocate with Beauty Counter, and is really, really awesome. And she is a newly diagnosed type 1 diabetic. So welcome, Jana. We are so happy to have you here. Hello, friends. I am happy to be here. I am really excited to get to talk to you about this because I know that it's something that you're really passionate about. Um, You've really taken it on as a good way to educate other people about type 1 diabetes and all the things around it. So I'm excited to just chat with you about your experience. Oh, I'm excited to tell you about my experience. It's quite the story, both in its development and the way I live with it today. So awesome. Happy to be here. Cool. So to get started, would you like to share a bit with us just about your personal journey with being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in the middle of your life? So most people are diagnosed much younger. Um And that was just not the case for you. So what was that experience like? And how did you initially react to that diagnosis? Sure. This could be a very long story. And so for the sake of brevity, what I will tell you is there are no type 1 diabetics in my lineage that I am aware of. I don't have any relatives who have type 1. Um, And we had no awareness 
that there would be type 1 anywhere in our lineage. And so on November 28th of 2022, when I was driving to New York to visit my parents and I could not see all of a sudden, it did not cross my mind that that could be related to diabetes. I actually thought I was experiencing screen fatigue from the amount of time I was spending looking at a computer or my phone. And by the time my time in New York had passed, I also came to realize that I was drinking an obscene amount of water and also therefore going to the bathroom a lot. And those three things, vision issues, uh, drinking a lot and going to the bathroom a lot are all very typical symptoms of type 1 diabetes. But I didn't know that. And so what I knew was that I couldn't see, and that was a problem. And so I went to an eye doctor, and he looked in my eyes and he said, I am not allowed to diagnose this, but you have diabetes. And I said, what are you talking about? I was here a month and a half ago, and my eyes were totally fine. He said, you need to go get blood work done. And so I did. And the indicator they use for managing diabetes, blood sugar is something called an A1C. And what an A1C is, is a three month average of your daily and hourly blood sugars. So your body has a way of sort of keeping a marker. And so a normal, they diagnose diabetes at a an A1C of uh, 6.5. And my first A1C came back at a 10.8. And I received a message from my primary care physician through the, uh, you know, messaging board that many doctors have. It's basically like, we should schedule a non-urgent medical appointment with you to talk about your recent blood work. And so they scheduled me for the end of the month. And it was the beginning of December at this point. And that kind of seemed weird to me. And so I questioned it. And I was told to just sit tight, that was going to be okay. And I finally put my foot down and said, someone needs to actually talk to me. Like, can I talk on the phone with my primary care, which is what we did. And she did not realize that I had vision issues and was now experiencing weight loss, uh, which is another symptom. And I had lost 15 pounds in four weeks. And because of other health issues, I don't lose weight very easily. Um, and so long story short, over many conversations, at that point, she had me go do blood work again. My A1C came back at an 11.6. And remember, it was two weeks later, and that is a three-month average. So from 10.8 to 11.6 is a huge jump for two weeks. And it was about to be the holidays. and so. She said, I'm going to inform my coverage just about what's been going on with you. And you need to see an endocrinologist. I got an appointment for January 3rd. And uh, I went into the holiday weekend because Christmas was on a weekend, just sort of sitting tight. And I spent the whole time starting Christmas Eve through the morning of the 27th, like in my condo 
with my two cats, just feeling off. I didn't go anywhere. I didn't do anything. I didn't talk to anyone. And on the 27th, when I finally left my house to go see a friend who hadn't seen me since the beginning of the month, she looked at me and said, you need to be seen by a doctor right now. Because she could see I had lost the weight. She could see that the muscle tone had changed very obviously. And I was a little bit disoriented at that point. I called the doctor, did more blood work. And within an hour of my blood work, me doing my blood work, I got a phone call from the covering physician. She said, you don't know me, but I'm going to ask you to go to the emergency room. If you don't want to go, I'm going to tell you that that could be a very dangerous decision. And I was like, I do what doctors say. I'll go to the emergency room. I'm like, that's that's not the issue here, you know? And so I went to the ER and very quickly, doctors started throwing around a term I wasn't aware with, aware of, DKA, which is short for diabetic ketoacidosis. And when things calmed down a little bit, the doctor said, we're putting insulin in your IV. Just want to let you know you're currently experiencing diabetic ketoacidosis. What that means is that your blood sugar has been very high for a long time. And in order for your body to compensate for that, it produces something called ketones. And if you have a buildup of ketones in your system, your blood becomes acidic. And so we are going to need to get your blood pH back to normal. And then we're going to admit you. And I was like, what? Admit me? Because I did not know that this was a big thing. He said, yes, after we have your blood pH back to normal, we'll admit you for a couple of days. And my first response was, but my birthday is Thursday. (laughs) Uh, It was Tuesday at the time. I was like, will I be out by then? He was like, yeah, probably not. I said, how long am I going to be in the hospital? As long as it takes is what they always say. And so spent the night in the ER and the next couple of days in the hospital. They were great about my birthday. I did get to have a piece of carrot cake. And um, on December 30th, came home and started my life as a type 1 diabetic, which is a completely different life. So I went in with one world and came out with another which is, by the way, why they keep you in the hospital for so long. You basically get taught. Like, it's like you have classes all day long. Jana, were your doctors just as surprised that you were type 1 diabetic? Yes. Can you explain a little bit about, like, what those early conversations looked like with the doctor who, you know, didn't seem to be as concerned early on? Sure. Um, I will say I... Ultimately, did change my primary care physician because it was very clear to me that she was negligent. Uh, I perceived, I should say, her to be negligent, but not with malintent. I truly believe she didn't know that adults could get type 1 diabetes because she was communicating with me the whole time via the gateway. And so It's not like she was ignoring the problem. She just kept putting it off. The truth of the matter is, is that type 2 diabetes and type 1 diabetes are basically different diseases. They really should have different names. Adults who get type 2 diabetes can have high blood sugars and just sit on them. 
because their bodies are producing insulin. It's just that the insulin isn't working to its full capacity or it isn't, um, but the body is doing some sort of resistance, right? That's what type two diabetes is. Type one diabetes is when you stop producing insulin altogether or you are slowly stopping over time as your pancreas declines. So diabetic ketoacidosis, what I was diagnosed with in the hospital, is incredibly rare in type 2 diabetics, which is why you can kind of sit and wait. And maybe you have six weeks, even though you've lost 40 pounds. (laughs) No, I didn't lose 40 pounds, but you know what I mean. Because your blood is not going to become acidic, which is considered an emergency. I believe that if she had actually known that adults could have type 1 diabetes, she would have told me to go to an emergency room. I don't think she knew. Can you explain what the high acid in your blood can do? Sure. I just want to add that I have seen other doctors since then who have tried to correct me when I have told them I am a type 1 diabetic, recently diagnosed type 1 diabetic. I had a gastroenterologist say to me, are you sure it's type one? Where were you diagnosed? Who diagnosed it? And I, I know all the answers. I can, I can spew them out. I can show you. You want to see my glucose monitor? You want to see the insulin I carry? What do you need to believe what I'm saying? Because it is that unknown that adult onset type one diabetes is a thing. And it's not as uncommon as you would think. So to answer your question about acidic blood, Basically, our blood is slightly basic, but close to neutral. As the blood acidifies, the body basically starts to shut down organs uh, based on sort of functional priority in order to try and survive. So things like your brain and your kidneys are typically first, and then respiratory system, etc. So What I will tell you, and by the way, interestingly, they did not explain to me any details about diabetic ketoacidosis when I was in the hospital. They told me exactly what I told you. And when I was discharged, I looked at my paperwork and it said diabetic ketoacidosis without coma. And that was the first time I realized that most often when people come in DKA, they're already in a coma. And I was like, what the heck? So I came home and looked up all the information about it and found out that stress increases your blood sugar. So they intentionally didn't tell me about it in the hospital because I didn't need any help with increased blood sugar at that point. We were trying to get my sugar down. And so, you know, they don't sort of explain every detail to you because they don't want you to freak out. And When I saw the information about DKA, when I did my own research, you better believe I freaked out. I was about 12 hours away from a coma. That's an estimate. But when your blood gets acidic, it doesn't take long. And so I'm incredibly lucky and I'm incredibly grateful because, you know, a lot of people don't have the story ending that I do. I would love to come back to the frustration of going back and forth with a medical professional, knowing something's wrong or something's off and continuing to have to advocate for yourself. But before we get into that, because I think that's a whole 
other piece to this is now you're 44, right? Or you were 43 at the time. Yes, I turned right. I turned 44 in the hospital. You turned 44. So it's not as, even though it's more common than you would think, most type one diabetics are diagnosed in childhood, right? So the number of people in your shoes developing type one diabetes at this point in life, which correct me if I'm wrong here, type one diabetes, the difference is also that it's an autoimmune disease. Correct. Where type two is not. Correct. And Jana also has a number of autoimmune diseases that she's lived with for a very long time. Also true. (laughs) Which you've adjusted to and always had to navigate. How was it adding an entirely new autoimmune disease to that list that really rocked the boat? I mean, it was awful. (laughs) I think I was in a state of shock for a little while. Um, And I think that that's normal for something so huge, because again, my my brain was trying to grasp this new life of, you know, trying to figure out how much insulin to give myself before a meal or before bedtime and monitoring my blood sugar, trying to figure out if it was high, what was going on, how I was going to bring it down. Like, what happens when I go out to eat? That was a whole other, you know, ball game. Like, how do I live basic life with this new altering disease? And so I would say probably the first three months, I was just kind of on autopilot without any real feelings on the topic. Um, I like to be I basically, something you should know about me, though I believe both of you know about me already, I really like to be good at the things that I do. And if I'm not, I don't do them. So like, if something is not my thing, like bowling, I am a terrible bowler. I would rather sit and watch you bowl than bowl because I'm terrible at it and I don't want to do it. And you're not going to teach me how to do it better. I know I'm bad. Are you sure you're not a type one Enneagram, Jana? <laughs> I am a type two, which means I have one wing possibilities and I was raised by a one wing two. So I certainly have my one moments, but I want to be good at it. And I was so frustrated because I wasn't good at diabetes and I couldn't quit it. Tell me, what does that mean? I didn't have my sugars under control. I didn't necessarily know, like my insulin was not addressing my sugars. I mean, that's really the the gist of the whole thing, right? And so no matter what I did, no matter how much I learned and I, how much I taught myself and how much I studied and read, it wasn't helping. I was still sitting with a high blood sugar at night and going, what did I do wrong? I'm not great without being able to control things. And when you are diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, you better be ready. I wasn't ready. It's taken almost a year to feel like I have any kind of control. And even then, I would not tell you that I have any control. I guess I would tell you I've learned how to deal with not having control. I I feel like that kind of goes into my next question that I've been wanting to ask, which is how did the diagnosis impact your overall perspective on life? Because you you had like this changes a lot of things in your life, but I imagine it would impact a lot of how you just approach life in general. Now, having that experience of 
now I'm out of, I'm a lot more out of control than I thought that I was initially. So I think that this has taken some time too for the mind shift change, because again, I really think your one was, is about survival more than anything else. I also live with depression. And so that's something I've dealt with my whole life. I take medicine for it, medication for it. I came to a point where I needed to increase my medication this year for the first time in a very long time. And that's because there were many days where it was hard to get up. Who wants to deal with planning all their food or counting carbs for every, you literally as a type one diabetic cannot put anything in your mouth without accounting for it in some insulin type way. And I don't have a pump. And so I'm still giving myself injections. And, you know, you do know, you both know, because you've traveled with me, right? I contact conference organizers to ask them what's on the menu during the conference before the conference so that I can pre-plan. Because when I dose insulin, I need 30 minutes before I can eat. And so I need to be aware of the bigger plan, so to speak. I mean, there isn't anything that hasn't changed. Literally nothing. I still love cats. I still love animals. I mean, the things that make me me are the same. But my day-to-day, every aspect of who Jana is on the day-to-day is completely different. I think of two things in particular, and they're kind of related, kind of not. But I almost feel like you had to go through the grief cycle. For sure. Grief cycle of a former life, grief yep. cycle of how you used to function. Um, and that grief can be complicated, right? There's a diagnosis in the, uh, my God. DSM. Thank you. The DSM <laughs> uh, for complicated grief. And so this is, I feel like one of those situations where you, because your whole life is literally shifting, you have to let go, right? Of who you were to become who you now are. And this isn't one of those struggles that you can, this isn't like I'm going on a diet and I can, I can throw in the towel and say, oh, I just, I'm not, I'm choosing not to do this anymore. You have no choice in that. So where do you think that you are now in that grief cycle? Are you in the acceptance phase? No, I, I think, I mean, sometimes yes. But I would say overall, I'm not. This is something I'm going to have forever. So I have a lot of time to come to accept it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But like you all mentioned earlier, many people become type 1 diabetics as children or in their early teens, even in their 20s. Those people who are now my age, they don't think about their diabetes because they've been dealing with it for so long. Like my peer group. I have a dear friend from college who's a type 1 diabetic, but he was a type 1 diabetic since he was 13. And so when I had questions in the beginning, I would ask him and he would apologize and say, Jana, I'm so sorry. I don't remember (laughs) the beginning. Like it was so long ago. And so I think that for me, acceptance will come from doing more advocacy work around my diabetes, talking about it more like I am right here. And also 
finding some peers with what some folks call LADA, which stands for latent autoimmune diabetes of adults. And so I feel like if I could find some peers who also have diabetes that came on in adulthood, I think that would help me speed up the acceptance process because I'd have, you know, validation to (laughs) also to commiserate with. Yeah. Like who get the fact that like, I don't know how to dose for pizza. I do now because I work with a diabetes educator who's a dietitian, but like I I'm still like in diabetes class. I have multiple doctors that I see from Jocelyn Center for Diabetes, which is one of the top diabetes uh, centers in the country. And I'm, I'm incredibly lucky and incredibly grateful to be able to access that resource. But I also can't help but think about all the people who do not have amazing diabetes care in their area and how they will not know how to dose for pizza. And thinking you can never have pizza will break your heart or cake or ice cream or, I mean, fill potato chips, take a carb and fill in the blank. Um, and that's still where my depression comes from. If I'm being honest, I'm a foodie and mind you, I'm a foodie who loves produce. I'm very lucky in that way. I'm an avid gardener. I help other people learn to grow their own food. I eat a ton of produce, which is great for diabetes, but I am originally from New York. I'm a girl who needs bagels, Mm, occasionally pizza. pizza, pasta. I love carbs. I love carbs. And I was eating gluten-free, by the way, in my house because it was inflammatory. Gluten is inflammatory prior to this. But guess what? Now that I count carbs, like gluten-free pasta has more carbs Mm -hmm. than regular pasta. So now I'm off eating regular pasta. But you know what's better than regular pasta? Whole wheat pasta. But whole wheat pasta has more carbs. So then you look at the fiber and the protein and there's an equation. And all of a sudden, diabetes is math. I am a math major. I am counting all day long. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that's very complex. Right. I look at, I compare things in the store. When I look at the information, I look at the total carbohydrate. But then I also look at the fiber and the protein. And in my head, I justify okay, this has more carbs, but it also has more protein. And the reason why is because your body processes sugar differently depending on what it's paired with. And so if something's high fat, it actually takes your body longer to process the carbohydrates. So the pizza example, Um, if something is high fiber, it's going to sort of help the sugar be processed more thoroughly. I mean, these are all the things that have to go through your mind. I guess they don't have to. But if you want to be good at diabetes, they do. <laughs> One little um, story that, I, and I had never heard this before, but my friend Erica actually was diagnosed as a type one diabetic mm-hmm. at mm, probably 32 years old. And hers started right after she had the flu, actually. Her body had like a had a major reaction to the flu and then ended up with, because she probably, she definitely had those antibodies, right? from the type one, that if she would have been able to be screened for, which is what I want to talk to you about in just a second, you could have at least prepared yourself a little bit better for that. For sure. But before I get into that, do you think, well, actually two things. So I have so many thoughts on this, but my first one is, do you think that this has 
empowered you to become an even better advocate for yourself than you already were. And the second part is, oh my God, because I have too many thoughts in my head. It's like escaping me. Let, let's start there. I'll come back to the second one. Maybe we'll need part two. Yes. Uh, come back another time. But um, yes, I already was a, a really strong advocate for myself, especially medically. And I, I am even more so now. And again, I do often think about someone else in my experience how their ending could have been very different because they maybe weren't as much of a medical advocate or as able to be pushy. But you mentioned your friend, and I think that there is something really important to be said. Type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease, and they don't know what causes it, like most autoimmune diseases. But what they do know, experts think that type 1 diabetes is caused by genetic factors, factors in the environment, such as viruses. And those viruses then trigger the disease. So you have the genetic predisposition, whether you know it or not. And then something triggers the disease that's usually viral. For me, I'm a COVID long hauler. I got COVID (laughs) with Sam in uh, March of 2020, before the world shut down. And I've had long-term issues ever since. And they, to point to a virus and say, this is the inspiring event. I mean, there's nothing as inspiring as long COVID, right? (laughs) And so it is important also for people to know that if you have this genetic predisposition, you could get the flu, a cold, COVID, and it could then trigger this autoimmune disease to start working in the body. And so, Sam, you mentioned screening. There's a huge push this year and probably every year from this point forward, um, this month, Diabetes Awareness Month, to encourage people to get screened. You can find out whether or not you are in stage one. By the way, there are three stages to type 1 diabetes. Um, Stage three is active diabetes. There are two stages before that. Stage one is just when the body is starting to attack the beta cells. And so you have these autoantibodies in your system that are activated. And if you are screened, they will see that. There are five that they test for. You only need two to be diagnosed as a type one diabetic. And that's ultimately how I got my official diagnosis, though the DKA also helped for the type one diagnosis. But anybody can get screened. If you have a single member of your family who is a type one diabetic, you should get screened. Because having type one diabetes in your family, anywhere in your family makes you 15 times more likely to get it as well. It's 15 times more likely. And it's much easier if you have diabetes in your family to say to your doctor, like, I want to be screened for these antibodies. However, it's really important to know that one in 300 people without a family history of diabetes will get diagnosed with diabetes this year. So the number one thing you can do for yourself, right, as an advocate right off the bat is get screened. Yes. I want to go back to being 
being the advocate for yourself. Mm -hmm. As someone who wants to be good at things, which (laughs) probably includes being a good patient. Yeah. How do you become a strong advocate for yourself? Because I'm sure that there are a lot of people who can relate to that feeling of, I want to be a good patient and I don't want to like rock the boat with my doctor. And also I want to advocate for myself. Like, how do you become that person? Especially in the, in the position that you were in, where you were being told by a doctor, it's not, it's nothing we can wait it out. It's nothing we can wait it out. We know a little bit of the backstory here, just to kind of preface that. How did you deal with that? And how do you, and back to Alexis's question, how do you be a good patient and advocate for yourself? How can you, can you coexist? Yes. I mean, I, again, I shared, I am a type two Enneagram relationships are the most important thing to me. And so I, I work really hard at them and they matter a lot. And so I do go back and forth in terms of being able to advocate for myself without hurting the relationship. But the truth of the matter is that if I don't advocate for myself, I'm likely hurting myself. And at some point in time, I have to put me before the relationship. And so, especially the story I told you about my primary care physician, I left her. I could not go back, even though she was communicative. I just couldn't. I couldn't face that whole situation again. And I and I didn't worry about that relationship, not for a second. I also think that a lot of times when people are advocating for themselves medically, they've spent a lot of time with um, Dr. Google and no doctor likes Dr. Google. So like you can't come in and say, I think I have all of these issues that I looked up on the internet, right? You need to be familiar with your own facts. So I looked over my blood work from the past five years and I noticed a trend. What do you think that could mean? Is completely different than I think I have these six diseases that I found online. And so being an educated patient about your own body, your own testing, your own medical experiences, and coming to doctors with your information, asking questions instead of telling them what the diagnosis is. These are all ways to maintain a level of respect. And I think that that's truthfully where the relationships go wrong. Either they don't respect you or you don't respect them. And the last piece of that is I switch doctors. You both know the story of Jana trying to find a gynecologist, (laughs) but I searched far and wide for a gynecologist that I felt was listening to me, was believing me, and wasn't talking down to me. And that this is all prior to diabetes. It's another medical issue from long ago. But the point is, I saw five gynecologists. It shouldn't be that way. But if I stopped and like dwelled on the fact that it sucked, <laughs> that the medical industry is this broken, and being a woman advocating for herself in women's medical issues specifically... I mean, you can't get any more of a triple whammy there. But I didn't let that stop me. I said, this person's a jerk. I'm going to find someone else. And I'm going to talk to the next one. And I'm not going to keep doctors who are jerks. I actually think there's also people who are on the complete other end of that spectrum too, who don't go in with any knowledge or any awareness or any real trust in themselves of knowing their body. 
and instead put all of the onus on the doctor to tell me what's wrong with me, tell me what's going on. And I think that there has to be a fine line there between going in and saying, I know I have, right? We don't want to be hypochondriacs or or improperly diagnosing ourselves, but we also don't want to go in there not trusting our bodies and ourselves and what we sense and know to be true, because otherwise we it could end up as gaslighting, right? When we go in sure. medical gaslighting, going in and saying, and they're being dismissive or the other end, we are going in completely naive and not having any real sense of self in the conversation. Yes, it is very important. And that's part of the reason why I think the best advocate is an, is somebody who's an expert in themselves and what they're feeling in their own medical history. If they have testing history and really trying to stay focused on what you know to be true and not necessarily what you found online. We could keep going on this. We may need to have a part two. Um, so we're, we're, we're already over our time. But what would you say is your new perspective at this point? Or the not even new, but the, the best perspective that you have right now on being a type one diabetic that helps you function to your best? I am grateful to have been welcomed into and and adjacent to the recovery community for a long time. And so I'm going to borrow from uh, our friends who 12 step and say, one day at a time, literally, and actually, one day at a time. My blood sugar is crazy today doesn't mean it's going to be crazy tomorrow. If tomorrow my blood sugar is crazy, doesn't mean it's going to be like that the next day. Every day that I wake up is a new day. And I'm going to stay in today to the best of my ability and not let my brain run away with tomorrow or yesterday. Just staying in today. It is the hardest thing in the world to do. But it's what I'm working on. Because truthfully, my whole life changed in a day. That's what a day can do. So today is the day. It's what I can be in control of and it's what I can live with and it's what I can experience. That's a common thread around here. So Mm -hmm. I think that that fit just perfectly. Alexis, any last thoughts before we wrap up? No, I just think that that touches on what we all could do more practicing of. It's just focusing on what we have right in front of us today and not getting ahead of ourselves or looking behind, but being in this moment right here, right now. And do your best to educate yourself. There are always opportunities to do that. And so take care of yourself, be well, and try and stay in the moment. Well, thank you very much, Jana. I think we may have shared this before. We may not have. We can't remember. But actually, Jana is the reason that Alexis and I are here together because she introduced us and we were roomies on my first incentive trip for Beauty Counter. And we have become the best of friends since. And Mm -hmm. that is all thanks to Jana, who I will also share is my mentor, my amazing mentor in my Beauty Counter business. It's true. Thank you, Jana, so much for being here with us. Yay. Thank you. I'm clearly drawn to successful and self-aware, amazing women. Ditto. And people, all people. Ah, thank you so much, Jana, for sharing so vulnerably all of your story. That was a lot. And we all really appreciate hearing from you and having some action steps to move forward too, so that we can all be better educated. 
So we will talk to you again next week. Have a good day. Thank you so much for joining us today. Just as a reminder, this podcast is not intended to replace professional medical advice or mental health services. If you are in a mental health crisis, please call the Suicide and Crisis Hotline at 988 or 911. Did today's episode of Perspectively Yours hit the spot? It would mean the world to us if you'd show us some love with these three effortless ways to help your fave podcast thrive. First up, the most important, never miss an episode by following or subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Just head over to our show page, tap the plus sign and select follow. Next, leave us a shiny five-star rating and review on your podcast platform. Your feedback helps us make each episode better and better. Last but not least, share your favorite episode with a friend. The power of word of mouth is undeniable, and we would be over the moon if you spread the love about Perspectively Yours. Before we let you go, here's a fun fact. We met through Beauty Counter, our favorite clean beauty brand, and are both brand advocates. If you've been looking for safer products that actually give you results, you can get 20% off your first purchase with the code CLEANFORALL20. Don't forget to follow us each on Instagram at Ms. underscore Samantha Kehoe and Alexis.TheNourishedBeginnings. Send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Be sure to check out the show notes for any resources we mentioned. Thank you for being here. We are grateful for your support and love. Thank you.